a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program is here to encourage people to stand for what they believe in most deeply, to strengthen the hearts of those who have chosen to make that stand, and to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible about the world around you. Because, man, there is a lot of misinformation circulating right now. And uh, sorting out facts from fiction, let's just say that it takes some real effort. And I'm here to assist you in your efforts to see things clearly and to uh, stand on your own feet and be the person you were born to be. My program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, <clears throat> HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, and GovernYourIncome.com. Got a lot of stuff to talk about today here. I wanted to start with uh, an essay that I found from Robert E. Wright, published on the American Institute for Economic Research's website. And in this essay, he addresses one of the biggest reasons why the public's faith in political institutions is fading fast. And that's because politicians are so well-practiced in avoiding accountability. And it's not just, you know, the weasel words that they use or the chameleon-like characteristics they take on, you know, whenever elections roll around. We've seen that, right? Right, Senator Romney? We've seen that kind of thing. Um, sorry. But uh, it's, it's also in the way that they craft their legislation, the way things are all lumped into a particular omnibus bill. And, well, let's just throw this all in there and then we'll pass it and then we'll figure out what's in it. And we're talking bills with thousands of pages of you know, legal jargon and minutia that uh, nonetheless becomes binding legislation once it's passed by Congress. So transparency is essential if you want to live and thrive in a free society. And Robert E. Wright talks about this in, in great detail. He says, have you noticed that many Democrats today are not particularly democratic? Oh, they want everyone and then some to vote. But that's where their conception of democracy seems to end. President Biden wants to tamp down on conspiracy theories, but this more by surveilling the public than by making the government transparent and accountable. Now, he says the banner of one of the party's leading newspapers, the Washington Post, has asserted that since 2017, democracy dies in darkness. But another of its rags, the New York Times, delayed a story about the Kenosha riots thought troublesome for Democratic Party candidates until after the 2020 election. Huh, what a coincidence. He says, when are they going to write, or what are they going to write, when secessionist movements pick up even more momentum? Now, that's a fair question. Because it's, it's happening. According to a 2018 Rasmussen study, almost two in five Democrats thought civil war was likely within the next five years. In other words, by 2023. Now, that was partly due to the hatred and distrust of then-President Donald Trump. But it was also an indication that Democrats are more likely to try to use force to keep a disintegrating nation together. 
Their paternalistic view of the world compels them to reject federalism in favor of centralized power. You'll own nothing and accept novel medical treatments and like it, or else. He says the key to preventing further disintegration of our governance is access to information, not voting, per se. Now, some people proudly don, I voted, stickers and buttons, and that's swell, but why did those folks vote as they did? Robert E. Wright asks, how can Americans discern who to vote for if they don't know who made which decisions, when they made them, and on what basis? Such informations become extremely difficult to obtain without the help of costly lawsuits, like the one in Missouri that recently revealed lawmakers had unconstitutionally ceded power to unelected government administrators. Similarly, the Fifth Circuit Federal Court reviewing the Biden-OSHA workplace COVID vaccination mandate could not be canceled or shouted down, so it easily demolished all the pretexts for the mandate. If the mandated medical treatment, which can be called a vaccine only because of a change in the CDC's definition of that term, is effective, then the only people at risk are the unvaccinated. If it's ineffective, then on what basis can it be mandated? If an emergency truly exists, why wasn't the mandate put in place earlier, and why did it not include small companies? How dangerous is COVID-19 for working people anyway? His point is OSHA could not answer such questions, revealing the vacuity of the mandate. Now, even after the court stayed implementation, however, Biden urged companies to comply anyway. (laughs) Say what? That's not how the rule of law works. And again, it seems that Americans all need to contact a judge or governor to protect themselves from charges of misprision of felony if not misprision of treason. So does the Biden administration have pertinent information that it's not disclosing, or is it covering something up? Well, we may never know, at least those of us in middle age or older, as the FDA wants 55 years to process Freedom of Information Act requests related to its COVID policies. Now, he points out that's not a typo. Nobody involved in this colossal COVID cluster wants to take the blame And the only way to protect themselves from the flood of Freedom of Information Act requests that were predicted last year is to stall, ham and haw, and obfuscate, and then stall some more. So Robert E. Wright says, How can Americans allow politicians to spend their money with almost no accountability or transparency? Details of the contracts between the government and major COVID vaccine, in quotation marks, manufacturers, unless leaked earlier will be unavailable for at least five years. By the way, Canadians and other alleged Democrats face similar restrictions. According to private sector auditors, the Pentagon cannot account for trillions of dollars. Americans will never know the details of that fraud because auditors could not finish their work due to the government's many bookkeeping deficiencies, irregularities, and errors. I should probably point out here, He has links. He supplies links to every single thing he's talking about here. So this is not just, uh, you know, this is not just Robert E. Wright just opining, you know, and free form uh, or freestyling, you know, some some uh, stream of consciousness thoughts on the passing scene. Similarly, he says manipulation of the Freedom of Information Request System stymies the investigation of past government mistakes at a wide range of bureaucracies including the Securities and Exchange Commission, which has long been infamous for its arbitrary decision-making processes. 
So he says, with help from another business historian, I was able to use the Freedom of Information Act to obtain the information necessary to expose the SEC's role in creating the conditions at the credit rating agencies that made virtually inevitable the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. And he says, I can't be certain that we found everything relevant to the SEC's flawed decision-making process. The Freedom of Information Act system was so slow and onerous that it appeared deliberately designed to dissuade researchers from investigating the SEC's past. Nevertheless, he says, we wanted to look, we wanted next to look at the changes in the SEC's so-called town hall rule regarding stockholders' right to use management proxy materials to submit proposals to fellow stockholders. After reviewing the extant uh, secondary literature, which is thin and repetitive because it's based solely on the few publicly available sources, we decided to press on with an in-depth analysis. This time, though, he says our fee waiver request was denied on nonsense grounds and our information request was subjected to repeated demands for more specific information. Now, he says the demand for more specific information, though, presented us with a catch-22 or a chicken and the egg problem. The SEC does not provide researchers with a finding aid, a document routinely created by archival staff to guide researchers to potentially relevant documents. He actually links to an example. But without a finding aid, he says researchers like me have no idea whether the documents they would like to see even exist, much less the details about them that the SEC's Freedom of Information Act requests officers purport that they need to see. See? The Freedom of Information Act reveals the government at its most inefficient or systematically corrupt. Now, there's more to this article, but the bottom line is, look, if complete and instantaneous disclosure proves impossible politically, the United States should return to a government with power so limited that it should not constantly need to be watched or audited or dreaded. I think he has a point here. The more that politicians can do in the dark or the more that they can do to try to shelter themselves from any real accountability, whether that's to the voters, whether that's to one another or the various regulatory agencies, the less likely they are to work in our interest. And that's what they're supposed to do in the first place, right? We didn't, uh, we didn't elect them so that they could go create their own little personal fiefdoms and, and you know do whatever they darn well please at the expense of the productive members of society. But that sure looks like what's happening, doesn't it? We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's been a while since I've given a shout-out to my friend Carl of the C-Train. Carl is one of my uh, seven faithful listeners. I just go with that number because uh, seven's a nice number, and I don't like to assume that, uh, you know, I've got uh, the world in the palm of my hand here. But um, one of the reasons I bring up my friend Carl is uh, I, I just saw this article, How Hallmark Channel Saved Christmas. And since I know that uh, Carl and his lovely wife, Yvette, have been extras in a couple of uh, different, uh, different movies filmed for the Hallmark Channel, I thought, okay, i got to check this out. This is an article by Martin Cothran. Pick this up off of intellectualtakeout.org. Now, 
I'm going to admit, I'm not the kind of guy who is likely to sit down and switch on the Hallmark Channel and, you know, just uh, grab a cup of tea and a blanket and <laughs> sit there in my pajamas and watch. No, I'm, I'm probably looking for something with car chases, explosions, and some gunplay, but hey, this is a really great article, though. <clears throat> Martin Cothran says, while conservative media have spent the last few holiday seasons bemoaning the war on Christmas, one television network is actually doing something about it. Using the cultural weapons of heartwarming settings, wholesome plot lines, and endearing characters, the Hallmark Channel has spent the last decade vanquishing the enemies of Christmas, who now lie prostrate on the field. But this cultural onslaught of wholesomeness has not come as welcome news to everyone. Hallmark Movies proclaims Salon Magazine's ill-tempered Amanda Marcotte constitute the platonic ideal of fascist propaganda. Dang! If only we'd known, right? The movies, she said, work to enforce very narrow, white, heteronormative, sexist, provincial ideas of what constitutes normal. (laughs) Martin Cothran says, well, I guess I'll mark her off my holiday party list. He says, most criticism of Hallmark Christmas movies take a slightly less fanatic approach. Their settings, the criticism goes, are unrealistic, their plots predictable, and their characters insufferably clean cut. Now, these may sound like bad things to some, but they're precisely the reason that people like these movies. In the case of Hallmark Christmas movies, their weaknesses are precisely their strengths. The Hallmark Channel is number one in households and total viewers in some primetime slots. During November and December, 85 million viewers, mostly women, watch at least one Hallmark Christmas movie. So, it's true, many of the plots do indeed employ a familiar formula, but it's a formula people are naturally attracted to. In fact, all good plots are formulas. That's what a plot is. It's a literary formula. Shakespeare used literary formulas, so does every good writer. In fact, author John Steinbeck said in East of Eden, there is only one possible plot line, as did writer Joseph Campbell, who called the plot line a monomyth, which sets a hero on an adventure who then has a crisis and eventually is transformed. So the question isn't whether a plot operates on a formula, but whether it operates on a good formula. The central aspect of any story is that the conflict the tension in the story that results from some evil threatening some good. Now, the best kind of story is one in which a real danger is averted, and the most calamitous tragedy that can be visited upon any human, the one that will bring you to your knees, is when the person you love is taken from you and there's no way to get him or her back. Now, that can happen through death, of course, but the popularity of the typical Hallmark Christmas movie lies in the tension that results from the possible failure of love, death of another kind, one possibly worse than the real one. So with regard to the complaint of unrealistic settings, there is something of an irony in the fact that in a media age dominated by superheroes and zombies, anyone would be indicting Christmas movies for a lack of realism. Since when do we demand realism in Christmas movies? Furthermore, says Martin Cothran, I'm unclear as to what the problem is with wholesome characters. Is simply portraying a good person an artistic problem? We know that making those good characters compelling is sometimes difficult. In fact, some writers have been criticized for making bad characters rather than good ones too compelling. 
as was the case with Milton's characterization of Satan in Paradise Lost. Such a charge has also been leveled at Disney, but he says if people are in fact compelled by a good character, then what's the problem? Is it that good characters are unrealistic, or are there really no good people out there? Those who think this just need to get out more. And he says, why do I get the idea that the killjoys who criticize Hallmark movies would cease their denunciations the second the studio started letting their characters hop into bed with each other? There's a cliche that they have no problem with. So he says, I'm trying to think of the last time I heard an evil character in a story being criticized for being evil. Why is it that good is thought of as needing an apology, but evil seldom does? Well, it says a lot about the current state of our culture that there are so many people triggered by wholesomeness. Martin Cothran says, I remember someone telling me years ago that the best thing we could do for young people is screen some of the great romance movies of the golden age of Hollywood for them. And he says, I think that's a good idea. We live in an age where people mistake sex for romance, largely because they know too much about sex and hardly anything about romance or love. So it isn't that Hallmark movies portray romance particularly well. Some do, some don't. It's that they do it at all. The rest of the movie can be a joke, but if it depicts one real romance convincingly, people will watch it. Love is the Hallmark Channel's monomyth, and they've got that market cornered. So there you go. I didn't think I would start out the day praising the Hallmark Channel and saying, hey, maybe there's something here that's, that's worth your while. Not because I think they do bad movies, but just I, typically I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the guy who wants to sit down and watch the chick flicks. Sorry. I'm way too alpha for that, man. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just, I just don't, uh, I don't get drawn to that as much as, you know, comedies or action or things like that. I do find it an interesting point, and I agree with Martin Cothran. There is kind of a stigma about being wholesome. And this isn't something new. In fact, I look back on when I was in high school, and there was a very real fear, at least I lived with a real fear, and I know that I had friends who lived with this too, of being seen as too good, as in goody-two-shoes kind of good. In fact, I think about the kids who I went to high school with who were really wholesome individuals. These are the ones who didn't use swear words, they didn't party, they didn't, you know, fool around. They were... They were straight arrows, and they were kind of outcasts in some ways. They, they were somewhat marginalized. And, you know, I'm, granted, we're talking high school culture, so, you know, you think about what was popular versus what wasn't. But you paid a price if you were seen as good. And there were a lot of us, myself included, who was like, you know, I don't want to be a bad person, but I don't want to be seen as too good. If I'm seen as too good, that's going to totally destroy my image, man. I'll have no street cred or whatever it was that we were thinking, you know. I'm not going to be acceptable to the people that need to accept me. Now, it's funny how all that stuff goes out the window as you leave high school. You get out into the real world and realize, wow, that was that was really artificial. <laughs> but uh, but it's real to, to the people who are going through it. And the funny thing about it is... Those kids who uh, sometimes were mistreated because they were so good and so wholesome actually never treated other people poorly. In fact, I look at them and I think, wow, they were some of the best examples of the kind of person that I'm trying to become 
They just got a real good head start on it. So, don't be afraid of being seen as too good. Understand, we all have flaws. Even the goody two-shoes have flaws. But maybe it's uh, maybe it's time to start looking with a, with a little less of a jaundiced eye at uh, those things which are, uh, do I dare say, wholesome in nature. You know, even even the stuff that uh, that Hollywood is putting out there that has kind of a wholesome flavor. I know it's not as edgy, right? It's not as it's not as crazy as giving Satan a lap dance. But hey, maybe there's something of substance here that we've been overlooking. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. Stick around. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, I want to thank you for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I have no idea on a daily basis how many people listen to this program. But I suspect that the ones who do listen are people who feel called at some level to stand up for what they believe is right, or at least what they believe matters. And it's not just a matter of, well, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to go out and burn my neighborhood down to show everybody how serious I am about, uh, you know, about making changes. I'm talking about people who stand for the right things and do it in ways that respect the rights of other people to believe and to, to think and to exercise their conscience as they see fit. In other words, it's not about forcing other people to come around to your point of view. It's about inspiring them rather than requiring them to think this way. Now, maybe I'm just an optimist, but I, I think it works. I think that uh, any time I've ever made a meaningful shift in my perception of the world... It was always, without exception, as a result of someone who had introduced me to new truth, but did so in a way that allowed me to come to that truth at my own pace, rather than just simply beating me into submission and saying, there, you can thank me later, you know, when you've changed your mind. So I had a conversation with a good friend last night. And something he pointed out to me really has stuck in my head. He says, you know, as, as he and his wife were driving around, he says, I, I, I just get the sense that, that there's so many ticked off drivers out there. And frankly, I'm doing less driving these days, you know, doing my part to save the planet. No, actually, I just I work from home, so I don't uh, I don't uh, I don't get out on the road as much. But I do see drivers that are pretty tightly wound. And uh, why are people seething? just beneath beneath the surface. My friend said, look, I think it's an indicator of some deep-seated anger that, uh, well, it's, it's the anger is real. You're just seeing it come out in people's driving, and you're seeing it come out in other ways too. But we have had to deal with a lot of pressure and stress, particularly over the last couple of years, but it still kind of raises this question. Why are we so angry? I have an article here from Peter W. Wood. This is from AmericanGreatness.com or AmGreatness.com. One angry nation, two wildly divergent explanations. He's actually reviewing a a book called Wildland, The Making of America's Fury by uh, Evan Osnos. 
And Peter Wood says, we Americans have become an angry bunch. He says, on that, Evan Osnos and I agree. Osnos is a staff writer for The New Yorker, whose new book, Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, surveys some of the same territory as my new book, Wrath, America Enraged. But on why we are angry and what it all means, he says, Osnos and I diverge. Osnos sees in contemporary America, quote, the failure of that mythology, end quote, that bound us together in moral commitment, including the rule of law, the force of truth, and the right to pursue a better life. Whereas Peter Wood says, I see in contemporary America not a failure of myth, but a change in character in which an older culture of self-restraint has given way to forceful expression. Now, he says, Osnos, whose other works include a flattering campaign biography of Joe Biden, blames ordinary Americans for indulging in a prolonged temper tantrum that has no real justification. Good heavens, could we dial the calendar back to 2016 and just let uh, Mr. Osnos see, see that for just a moment? Speaking of prolonged temper tantrums, nevertheless, Peter Wood says, my view to the contrary is that ordinary Americans are responding to the emergence of a ruling class whose contempt for them and for American civilization is nearly comprehensive. It's not that faith in the rule of law, the force of truth, and the right to pursue a better life has faltered. It's that faithful Americans now face the lawless use of state power, a duplicitous media, and rent-seeking by global elites. He says, Osmos' book has woven together a vivid tales of individuals in Greenwich, Connecticut, Osmos' hometown, Clarksburg, West Virginia, where he once worked for the local newspaper, and Chicago. He injects into almost all these stories his own disdain for the kinds of people who supported the Tea Party and eventually Donald Trump. The historical arc of Wildland is from the shock of 9-11 to the insurrection of January 6th. He pauses at one point mid-book to observe, quote, Trump, the Tea Party, the NRA, they all made use of that rising unease of Americans who could not quite put a name to the anxieties they felt about the disordering of their world, about the puncturing of American invincibility, the browning of America, the vanishing of jobs to automation, the stagnation of their incomes, the language of force gained ground. Sarah Palin, in her appearances at Tea Party rallies and online, made frequent use of metaphors from the Revolutionary War and the world of guns. Don't retreat, reload, she liked to say. End quote. Now, Peter Wood says this wraps together in one noose many of the demons haunting Osnos' America. Those people who can't quite put a name on their anxieties are the easily manipulated dupes of demagogues like Palin and Trump. Why are so many Americans furious? Well, Osnos says it's because they're afraid. And the answer is a familiar theme on the American left, which would like to psychologize away the dissatisfactions of the tens of millions of Americans who comprise the angry right. As Osnos puts it, those already stewing in economic or racial resentment were not in possession of an ideology, but had a rootlessness of the mind, a loss of purpose, inspiration, and community. Somehow missing in his 400-page-plus account, are the words that seared in the memories of a great many Americans when in 2016 Hillary pronounced half the supporters of Donald Trump to be a basket of deplorables, characterized by their racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic views. And before that, in 2008, when Obama had this to say about working-class voters in old industrial towns, they get bitter, They cling to guns or religion or antipathy to people who aren't like them or anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-trade sentiment as a way to explain their frustrations. 
So deplorables and bitter clingers are touchstones for almost every working class Trump supporter I've ever talked with, says Peter Wood. And he says it seems odd that Osnos never mentions those words. Despite quoting copiously from Hillary and Obama, and despite his interviewing a fair number of working class Trump voters, was he unable to hear how the contempt of these national figures reverberated in the lives of the people they dismissed? Hearing it would cast doubt on the idea that the Tea Party and the populist movement that followed it were rooted in fear. The roots of that movement were a righteous fury, not baffled distress or unfocused anxiety. People understood perfectly well that a new governing class had arisen determined to overturn democratic norms and our self-governing republic and to replace them with domination by self-serving experts and a globalized elite. Now, the principles of the Declaration and the Constitution still play a large role in the lives of millions of Americans, but not so much in the lives of progressives, who since the time of Woodrow Wilson have regarded the nation's founding documents and the principles they embody as obstacles to overcome on their way to a more efficient and just polity. Wildland is a book aimed at reassuring the supporters of the new regime that the fury of their fellow Americans is an aberration, It was set in motion by the shock of 9-11 and exploited by leaders who translated the fears of ordinary Americans into a xenophobic rage. Osnos recalls in his opening pages how when he worked on the newspaper in Clarksburg, he noticed how fear was reaching into our political life and how soon enough vandals drew the picture of a lynching and the name Jamal on a West Virginia mosque. But by the end of the book... Osnos is expressing his frustration that Trump supporters refused to abandon him even after the January 6th insurrection. Here's a quote from the book. The more I asked, the more people dug in. The truth was, I knew that any real change, if it was to happen, would start in private. Now, he also says the agonies of 2020 had not snapped Americans out of their divisions. The rifts were too wide and the combatants too entrenched for any easy reconciliation. But the Trump presidency and the COVID pandemic had forced Americans to reckon more explicitly than at any moment in years with the costs of inequity, seclusion and disengagement, end quote. So Osnes's counsel is that while it will take time, Americans will outgrow their infatuation with Trump and populism and will settle down to enjoy the normalcy of American life. Now, the normalcy he has in mind, of course, is the dispensation of permanent progressive government. Now, Peter Wood says, wrath, America enraged, offers no such reassurances. He says, for one thing, I take what Osnos calls America's fury as the culmination of a much longer and deeper set of developments. Looking back over the whole sweep of American history, and we can find lots of eruptions of civic discontent and public anger, the American Revolution and Civil War are the preeminent examples. But he says, hardly a year has gone by in our history without notable disruptions infused with anger. People are always angry, and politics is a prime medium for anger. i got to tap the brakes here because we are fast approaching our commercial break. We'll come back to this article from Peter W. Wood. It is also linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. They have been such a remarkable sponsor and a long-term sponsor here on this show. And and I want you to know, if you are anywhere within the state of Utah and you have need of, uh, whether it's a VA loan or a traditional loan or a reverse mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you, especially when time is of the essence, which... Let's face it, it's a very competitive real estate market. You find the home of your dreams, your financing's got to be squared away right now. You can call 435-703-4522 to talk to Heather. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and their offices are located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. There's also a link to her email in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I'm sharing this article here from Peter W. Woods. One angry nation, two wildly divergent explanations. And as we were hitting the, the break, I, I mentioned that he, he points out how people are always angry and politics is a prime medium for anger. But he says anger isn't necessarily the same in every circumstance. For much of American history, we can discern exceptionally strong cultural constraints on how and when anger could be displayed. Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton fought a duel. They didn't step out in front of France's tavern to throw haymakers at each other. George Washington himself was known to have a volcanic temper and was all the more respected for his success in reining it in. Parents labored hard to teach their children emotional self-control. The very word tantrum was an 18th century coinage that caught on in America in the early 1800s as a way of expressing disapproval of childish outbursts. Louisa May Alcott's Little Women presents Joe's mother telling her, You think your temper is the worst of the world, but mine used to be just like it. I've been trying to cure it for 40 years and have only succeeded in controlling it. I am angry every day of my life. Now, Peter Wood says, Americans of generations past knew all about anger. But our heroes were like the characters portrayed by Gary Cooper, who mastered it rather than letting it master them. Things began to change in the 1950s when American elites cottoned to Freudian ideas among the lines that repressing anger would come back at you as neurosis and French, French existentialist ideas that expressing rage was the key to a more authentic life. He says, in my writings on the subject, my books, A Bee in the Mouth in 2006 and now Wrath, I've tried to trace how step by step this new permission to display anger worked its way into the broader culture. So he says, I won't try to retell that story here, but one important observation is that our culture became conspicuously angry well before anger took over our politics. And the paradoxical reason for that is politics is always angry. And because it's always ready to descend into unbridled nastiness, we've developed codes and formal courtesies to restrain over-the-top anger in political situations. Now, they've sometimes failed, of course but they continued to maintain some degree of order long after we had collectively let loose in vituperative aggression in music, movies, sports, the arts, and domestic life. 
But then came the George W. Bush years, which in which outright political rage on the left, combined with the accelerant of social media, demolished all of the old political protocols. The hate fest had begun. Now, this is plainly an entirely different story from the one Osnos offers. He says, I don't mean to say that 9-11 isn't a reasonable point to start an account of what led us to today's fraught situation. But I think that it helps to put these events in the longer perspective. Once upon a time, Americans regarded self-restraint as a key social and personal virtue. By the, 16, by the 1960s, rather, self-expression was well on its way to usurping that older ethic. Out of this came what I call new anger. In other words, anger that's proud of itself and is performed with the expectation of approval or even applause. New anger is show-off anger. It makes the performer feel powerful and real. In fact, he says Donald Trump was and is a master of this kind of performance, which today is a kind of cultural capital. Now, Peter Wood says, look, I write from a somewhat complicated position in that I regard new anger as corrosive to our social and cultural life. But, he says, I also regard Trump as having played an immensely valuable role in pushing back against the cultural and social catastrophe of progressive domination. No one else could have done it. And by doing it, he clarified for millions of Americans exactly what we face. New anger was also an emotional valence better suited to protest movements and those who reject traditional values. So it made sense that an angry left crystallized as a mass phenomenon well before an angry right came along. And he says, I say this perfectly aware that Rush Limbaugh and his imitators had begun to conjure conservative anger in the 1980s and the angry white man was routinely denounced during the Bill Clinton years. These were passing comets compared to the blast furnace of left-wing denunciation that belched forth following the 2000 election. But somehow Osnos missed every bit of this in his account of the making of America's fury. He misses as well the result of the 2020 election and the riot at the Capitol on January 6th are not about a sense of a sense uh, among a great many ordinary Americans that they've been caught up in a Trumpian delusion and misled. They don't believe that the old values of self-government, moral commitment, including the rule of law, the force of truth and the right to pursue a better life were mere mythology and that Trump's character flaws, including his anger and his capacity to anger others, ought to send us off to a period of humble repentance and a renewed submission to the rule of our betters. Rather, we see a highly questionable election manipulated by those who played on the fear of COVID to allow for highly irregular forms of voting. We see a disorderly but unarmed demonstration in the Capitol, wildly labeled as an insurrection. We see the instruments of state power, such as the FBI and the Justice Department, deployed to advance spurious uses of law. We see the rampant politicization of, of the military and deliberate disregard for the nation's borders. We see gross mismanagement of the economy. We see Americans left behind in the shambolic evacuation from Afghanistan. And we see continued efforts by the federal government to provoke fear and hysteria on COVID, climate change, and race, all to the end of further destruction of our civil liberties and self-government. I don't think he's wrong here. Peter Wood says, if one wants to truly understand the making of America's fury, it would be a good idea to take those matters seriously rather than to treat them as some kind of psychosis. 
whether it might whether my own account of how America became enraged will stand the test of time, he says, well, I can't say. But at least I can say that Osnos's Wildland provides no insight at all into what's really happening among those of us who see ourselves as opposing a tide of illegitimate cultural authority backed by unfounded state power. Kind of an interesting take there. Now, for what it's worth, if if anger is one of the driving factors in your life, or if it's one of the dynamics that moves you through the day, let me put this another way. If you have to set aside time every day just to seethe and to feel anger and remind yourself of who or what you're against, there is a better way. And that anger may feel justified. I mean, there's, look, I, I see things that frustrate me to the core. And yeah, it does conjure up a sense of anger that someone could do this. Not just to my beloved country, but to to uh, to my rights and to to my prerogative to live according to my conscience. I think about the future that my kids are facing and my grandkids are facing because of the people who feel like it's it's my prerogative to dominate and to tell everybody this is how they should should be. You know, as a free man. That kind of stuff isn't something that's that's easy to just shrug off and say, yeah, well, you know, to each his own. Because these people are talking about weaponizing, you know, and using government force to bring people into compliance. By the way, there's been a lot of great uh, object lessons in this as, as we've watched the COVID pandemic response play out. Look, anger's part of being human. Okay, it's not like it's not like you can just switch it off like a light switch. Okay, you know, it's it's done. I'm I'm not going to be angry now. But I think self-restraint is essential. And again, I'm going to come back to the idea that it's far more important that you be dead set certain about who you are and what you stand for more so than simply what makes you angry. My listeners have heard me say for some time now, if you uh, you tell me what makes you angry, and I'll have about a 90% probability of being able to tell you where you get your news. Because that's how predictable we become. And news feeds our anger many times, depending on the sources that you access. It's time to lift ourselves a little bit higher, to elevate our minds and elevate the discussion. And we can do this. You just have to want to. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Look, the idea isn't that uh, you have come to me today so that I can dispense truth from my all-knowing position. Sitting here in my easy chair, pipe in hand, perfectly brill-creamed hair, and, you know, all the fatherly advice that a person could need. Nope. I'm just trying to find my way the same as as you are, and uh, I've put some pretty serious time and effort into knowing where I stand 
and understanding why, you know, these are the principles on which I'm going to build my life and build my worldview, I invite you to think as clearly and independently as possible about the world around us. And then you take this information, you do with it as you wish. If you disagree with me, I'm not going to be offended. In fact, I sincerely hope that uh, you come to the point where you don't even need me to point you in the direction of truth. You've figured it out, and uh, who knows, maybe I'm playing catch-up and trying to follow you. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com. Now, this is food storage. It's ReadyWise Food. It is uh, 25-year shelf life, uh, dehydrated and uh, freeze-dried foods. Great thing to be thinking about as you're thinking about what could I give family members, you know, for gift-giving season for Christmas. I know it sounds like a crazy gift, and maybe there was a time when people would have thought, really? Food storage for Christmas? Trust me when I tell you, people will have a little bit different attitude. Maybe it's because they look at the uncertainty around us and go, yeah, maybe that's, that's a good idea to have this on hand. I will tell you this. Getting stocked up isn't cheap. It's the kind of thing that requires consistency. But I will also say that my uh, my sponsor here, LifesavingFood.com, is offering a 25% discount to my listeners. All you have to do is use the coupon code HIDE at checkout, H-Y-D-E, to get that uh, discount. So this is going to be kind of an interesting place to start in this hour. Um, I'm I'm not the kind of guy whose success has gone to his close. Anybody who's seen me out on the town will realize, yeah, he's you know pretty pretty average dude. Fashion's been a very low priority for me, simply because, well, because I'm I'm mostly heard and not seen. Kind of prefer it that way. But I think about this sometimes. I think about the clothing that I buy, in terms of how durable is it, how long is it going to last. Case in point. I uh, was going through some cold weather gear the other day, just, you know, kind of inventorying. What do we got here? And I found a couple of old British wool army sweaters. Now, these are pretty nifty looking sweaters. I mean, they've got the, you know, cloth patches on the elbows and they're they're very heavy duty wool, extremely warm. And I gave one of them to my son and, you know, thankfully, like me, he's not super fashion conscious. He's not trying to be a pretty boy everywhere he goes, but he put the thing on and was like, man, this thing is great. This is this is really warm. And above that, it's durable, which is one of the reasons I bought it. I think I bought it 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Just because I wanted to make sure I had, you know, some cold weather gear that was built to last. These are military spec sweaters, and yeah, they're built to last. So Colette from Frugalite has a very interesting article on why fast fashion isn't frugal and why buying long-lasting clothing is actually a smart move. Now, maybe this will relate to you, maybe it won't, but I just offer this in the spirit of, uh, here's a point of view that you may not have considered. She says, these days we hear talk about fast fashion, which is, that's where you buy for a micro-season and then throw the clothing out. And she says, now I confess, I have sampled once or twice from the clearance rack in stores like this, but never again. And the reason is, she says, the disposable fashion I bought for such a cheap price was falling apart before I could even get a reasonable amount of use out of it. The fabric would pill or stretch or wear thin almost immediately. Now, one estimate has the clothing and footwear spending in the U.S. alone at $1.9 trillion in 2019. And Colette, who's the author of this article, says, 
I can't really even imagine how much money that is, but I'm here today to talk about saving money rather than spending it. So she says, I'm going to share a few stories about some of my ancient clothing and the lessons they offer us frugalites about long living fabrics. Fast fashion simply isn't frugal. So she says, when I was 17 and in high school, I bought a T-shirt at a local mall. It was a Ralph Lauren brand, no collar, with horizontal bands of bright colors, including blue and red and black. But what truly distinguished this T-shirt was the fabric. It was a noticeably thick 100% cotton with a very dense weave. And she says, I had no idea when I bought it that day how long it would be with me. After keeping it for at least 20 years... I passed it along to my mother, who owned it for another five to seven years. It simply was not aging or wearing. It still looked brand new. I saw her wearing it and remembered how much I liked it and took it back from my mother. I wore it for several more years, and then, because I was no longer wearing it, I donated it to a local thrift shop. Yes, it still fit. I just wasn't wearing it and thought maybe somebody would enjoy it in all of its multicolored glory. When I donated it, she says the T-shirt was over 33 years old. Yes, this is how long it's possible for quality clothing to last. Imagine the savings to the planet and our pocketbooks if all clothing was made to this standard. Now, what lessons did I learn from my beloved T-shirt? Quality fabrics are everything when it comes to longevity. How did I care for it? Well, first of all, I didn't wash it every single time I wore it. This is important. However, it did go into the dryer at least sometimes. Classic looks with colors, classic colors, she says, will age well. Then she talks about her 34-year-old sweater, saying, I was 18 and leaving home to go to university. As a going-away gift, she says, my younger sister gave me a beautiful sweater she had knit herself. Of course, I'd seen her knitting it, but she told me it was for a friend. It was a Fair Isle sweater that was popular in the 80s with a rich dark green body and a yoke that mixed the dark green with beige, medium brown, and black. Now, she says, I always kept this sweater, although I didn't always wear it, as the style had fallen out of fashion. However, I recently pulled it out of my storage suitcase and started wearing it as a coat in the shoulder season of late fall and early winter. Now, this was recently during covid And she says, I was often in big box hardware stores. They weren't locked down, you know, yet buying hardware items for my cabin build. And I was amazed at the people who would approach me to give me compliments on the sweater. One woman owned a similar sweater years ago. How I wish I hadn't gotten rid of mine, she sighed as she complimented me on mine. Now, Colette says, what are the lessons to be learned from my 34-year-old sweater? Well, the wool in this sweater is remarkable. It has a thickness and weight to it that you don't see all the time. When I asked my sister about it, she said that she had bought the highest quality wool she could find, she could find rather, and afford. And it seemed to her that the wool still had some of the natural oils in it. Now, here's the final lesson. She says, I never washed that sweater in all the 34 years I've owned it. And if you're saying, ew, I can provide support for this choice. If I spilled something on the sweater, I just wiped it off with a damp cloth. The dark green color of the sweater has meant any minor dirt on it has never shown. It smells as fresh as a daisy after all these years. And she says, I've never worn it without a shirt or turtleneck underneath, and I can assure those are washed more than every 34 years. So her feeling is that by not washing it, she's maintained those natural oils in the wool and prevented any stretching or pilling that washing may have caused. Finally, she talks about her uncle's insulated coveralls. He ran a successful farm drainage business in the 1980s. As the demand for this service reduced, 
She says, he and my aunt bought a paint store in their small town and worked at that for over 20 years until they retired. After my uncle passed away, she says, my aunt let me adopt a few of his belongings. One of these was a set of insulated coveralls. I carry them in my car during winter as a safety precaution. If I need to be outside for any length of time with a vehicle problem, they're so large I can throw them on over my clothing to keep warm. Now, here's the kicker. These coveralls are now nearly 40 years old. And she says her aunt recalled that they were likely purchased at the local farm co-op. Not only did her uncle use them for years to work on and run heavy equipment outside in the Canadian winter, his grandsons also wore them while using his tractor to blow snow. What are the lessons from these long-lived coveralls? Quality parts last. The zipper is made of heavy metal. It's large with huge teeth, still running smoothly after all these years without a single snag. In fact, she says, when I looked at the tag of these coveralls as part of my research for this article, I was surprised to see that they were made in Canada. Yes, back in the day when we made our own items and quality was king. While quality was made in Canada clothing, while quality made in Canada clothing may be hard to come by these days, she says, it doesn't hurt to examine the zipper of what you're trying to buy to assess its sturdiness. So the point here is, in a world filled with fast fashion, Look for slow fashion trends. Keep an eye out for quality. And you could save a lot of cash by getting things that will last and last. I don't know. Maybe maybe there are some items of clothing you found that uh, were a particularly good buy simply because they look good. They were durable. Have kind of a timeless fashion to them. Well, free to drop. feel free to drop a comment in the show notes. You'll find them at thebrianheidshow.com. Back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's probably fitting in the last uh, segment I was talking about clothing and getting stuff that lasts. Because I'm going to take a moment here to, uh, again, give a quick shout-out to uh, one of my great sponsors, and that is SewingQuiltingCenter.com. It's actually the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, 779 South Bluff Street. This is a family-owned business, and if you have anything to do with embroidery or quilting or sewing machines, these are the folks you want to talk to. They sell the machines, they service the machines, they will train you in how to use them, and of course, all the other things that you need, uh, superior thread, fabric, cuddle, blanket material, 108 backs, yeah. You can uh, click on the link in my show notes for sewingquiltingcenter.com, or you can just uh, stop in and see them. Next time you're in St. George, Utah, tell them, hey, thanks for sponsoring Brian's show, and yes, we heard your message. So two quick things here. Uh, one, I don't mean to challenge the highest paid federal employee who also just happens to be science incarnate. But I'm including in today's show notes a compilation of more than 400 studies on the failure of compulsory COVID interventions. Now, this is not so you can go pick fights with, you know, Uncle Clyde at the, you know, the family uh, Christmas party. But these are legit studies that legitimately show all of these interventions, all of these mandates, all of this top-down, you will do this, and, you know, this is how we're going to save the world. 
there are serious questions about whether they work. I'll let you sort it out for yourself. It's a very lengthy read, but again, if you're one of those people who's very serious on doing your own homework, not just going on somebody else's light, you read this and I think you'll come away with the conclusion that, uh, hey, Dr. Fauci's not the only one out there trying to save lives. Now, I want to shift gears to another thing, and this is, uh, this is uh, I want to talk a little bit about Atlas Shrugged. It's funny, some of the people who used to be some of the, the strongest, most vocal critics of my St. George News columns would, would say, Brian, you've got this infatuation with Ayn Rand. Even if I wasn't quoting Ayn Rand, they were sure that whatever I was thinking was because of Ayn Rand. And I have to admit, Atlas Shrugged, when I first read that immense novel with its you know 55-page speech by John Galt on the radio, it was pretty eye-opening. And the crazy thing about it is, uh, as, as Ayn Rand described this world in which the, the um, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say it without name calling, but the, the busybodies who feel like, well, you know, once I get a little political power, I'm entitled to go out there and reshape the world in my image. And as we have seen this happen, as we've seen more progressive domination of our system, they're creating exactly the kind of world that she's describing in Atlas Shrugged. Now, of course, the productive people in Atlas Shrugged, the the industrialists, the entrepreneurs, the people who actually worked for a living and who created things of value, were so tired of being portrayed as the bad guys and lambasted and fleeced of everything that they created, that they finally said, screw it, we are out of here, and John Galt departed society to Galt's Gulch. So if you've been wondering, if you're familiar with this book, and you're wondering, is it time to head out to Galt's Gulch to escape the growing madness of our society? Here's an interesting answer for you. Bertine Schaefer says, we're already there. In fact, she says, there are numerous ways of fighting back from where we currently are. I found this particularly encouraging as, as I was looking at this. She starts with a quote from Laurie Anderson. Paradise is exactly like where exactly like where you are right now, only much, much better. Hmm. So Bertine Schaefer says, hey, what if I told you that we're already living in Galt's Gulch? What if I told you that we don't actually need to find a bunch of like-minded people and go in on a big piece of land together, far away from everyone else, and build our own societies from the ground up? Not that there's anything wrong with that, of course. But she says it's not necessary. We already have the tools at our disposal, most of them anyway, to create and maintain free societies right where we are. And these are some of the examples she gives. Common law, for instance. Volumes have been written, some of them very good, about how a stateless society might operate, how rights might be protected, and crime dealt with in the absence of a monopoly on violence and the justice system. But we already have a body of law that upholds the rights of individuals, protects their property, and defends contracts. It exists in stark contrast to the multitudes of laws created by politicians and their cronies. Laws that often directly violate this older, more fundamental body of law. And it's enforceable. Dale Brown, founder of the uh, the Detroit Threat Management Center, understands this. When he saw police failing to protect people from crime in one of the worst neighborhoods in Detroit, he moved in and started doing it himself. As he told Tom Woods back in 2016, any citizen can take someone into custody if they commit a violent act. 
Brown said, I've learned better ways of crime prevention because I have to. I'm accountable. I have no qualified immunity. That means if I put my hands on someone, it has to be legal. There has to be a way for me to explain it as a civilian. As a result, he says, we've had no court date in 20 years. No lawsuits in 20 years. I know, I I suggested a few years. I actually interviewed Dale Brown uh, a few years back. And after interviewing him, I wrote a column for St. George News suggesting maybe we should look at privatizing police. Holy cow, people lost their minds. But there it is. 20 years, no court dates, 20 years, no lawsuits. Hmm. Something seems to be working there. And Brown's methods rely on common law principles. He and his threat management team only take action against those committing genuine crimes against people or their property. Because they're not agents of the state, they don't enforce laws against drug use or other victimless crimes, and they employ the power of citizens' arrest, which is available to all of us. Bertine Schaefer says, look at imagine it, how our, our world might look if there were threat management-like operations in every city. With the abject failure of police departments to protect people and their property, come on, think about the riots last year. Their willingness to commit violent acts against those they've sworn to protect and their inherent lack of any real accountability. Private solutions like this have never been more necessary. Now, others are using principles well established in contract law to hold those accountable, to hold accountable, rather, those in positions of power. Using tools such as the notice of liability to stop city governments, school districts, and other entities from committing acts of trespass, for example, or... We don't need to establish a brand new system of laws in order to begin protecting ourselves from political aggression. So there's some good news there. Next, she talks about parallel institutions. Likewise, we do not need to isolate ourselves in order to create parallel institutions and services to replace the crumbling state-dominated ones. Nor do we need to isolate ourselves geographically in order to build real in-person communities based on a respect for individual liberty. For many years, alternative medicine practitioners and others have operated under private membership associations, or PMAs, serving members only and not the general public. Now, their PMA status places these operations outside the jurisdiction of much of the regulatory state, creating a space within which free market activity can flourish. And she has several links to different uh, PMAs to help people understand how to establish one. Meanwhile, there are creative ways emerging to assist people in exiting broken systems, forging new ones, and connecting with others who wish to do the same. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you there's probably 10, maybe 12 different links just in that paragraph alone to back up what she's saying. So when we come back from the break here in a few moments, we'll talk about how might we use these tools? In other words, how does this all come together? And I will have a link to Bertine Schaefer's article, We're Already There. Just in case you got your bags packed and you're ready to head out to Galt's Gulch, you know, in the next few minutes. Stick around. I promise I'll make it worth your while. And we'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. This is one of the more interesting stories that I've read in a while. It's an article from Bratine Schaefer talking about Galt's Gulch. You're thinking of heading for Galt's Gulch? Well, actually, we're already there. And it's pretty encouraging when you consider. There, there are numerous people, myself included, trying to find solutions. How can we escape the coercion and the pressure to do what the system all around us is demanding that we do? I'm all for walk away from it, turn your back on it, withdraw your consent. Rather than let's go out and fight it head on in the streets. That's, you know, violence is not, to, is not going to bring the, the rewards that, that some people think it will. And the people who are trying to harness the violence of the state to force everybody to do what they want them to do, I'm sorry, but they're not occupying the moral high ground. Just because it's legal doesn't make it moral. So rather than going out there and we've got to fight them in the streets and we've got to beat them into dust, no. Make them obsolete. Leave them standing there with their whistle in their hand and their, their uniform or their, their look of authority on their face wondering, hey, what happened? Where'd everybody go? Yeah, they'll be frustrated, but you know, they'll get over it. So how might we use these tools of parallel institutions and common law? How could that come together? This is how Bertine Schaefer describes it. This is just a hypothetical. The Jackson family starts a PMA school in Pleasant. That's a private membership association school in Pleasantville. Students or their parents must be members of the PMA in order to attend. Over time, the Jackson school proves its worth, and families who aren't interested in what government schools and more traditional private schools have to offer start to migrate to Pleasantville. Meanwhile, the Henderson family gets together with the Wu family and create a PMA hospital. It's small, nothing like the oversized and impersonal mega hospitals in the big cities, but it is capable of treating most emergencies, has a respectable labor and delivery wing, and most of all, treats patients and their families like human beings and respects their right to choose their own medical procedures and treatments. There are no masks required, no demands to show vaccine status, or any kind of test result in order to be admitted. And no patient is ever prevented from having family members or others with them at any time. Now, the combination of the school and hospital serve as magnets to attract both freedom-loving people and more businesses to serve them. Without having come together in any formal way or buy a big piece of land together or even having met each other or interacted in any direct way, a bunch of people with similar values have created a community for themselves. Someone else starts up a franchise operation of Dale Brown's threat management private security business, maybe in an area that was experiencing crime problems. And the drop in crime attracts even more families and businesses to the area. A geographic community has now been created, not by any explicit plan, not by a bunch of people getting together and deciding to live by the same rules, but simply by people who value liberty taking advantage of already existing rules and structures to create solutions and naturally gravitating towards others who do the same. Alongside this geographic community are various online communities and markets. The 214 Calm, that's Community Activation and Launch Methodology, for example, provides benefits for keeping economic transactions within the community, but does require that participants do so. 
And Exclave Bucks provides an independent currency that's linked in concept to a physical, intentional community, but does not require that users also live in that community. Also, individuals are creating these solutions to government dysfunction that will be the foundation of a free society. This is something that's already happening. It's no longer something we need to plan for. Bertine Schaefer points out this nation was founded to a large degree by people seeking freedom from persecution. It was founded by people fleeing from worlds that did not tolerate their way of life or their values. By people who chose to come to a new land and start anew, building communities based on their own values. But she asks, what do we do when we've run out of physical frontiers? When the people and institutions that would control every aspect of everyone else's lives can reach all around the globe and demand compliance with their will? Well, the answer is we fight back from where we are. The solutions are not as complicated as many of us think they are. We don't need one all-encompassing answer, but a decentralized assortment of tools from which each one of us can choose in order to create the new worlds we desire. And her point is, we already have those tools. It's happening now, and we're already there. Pretty cool stuff. I think that may be one of the more encouraging things that I've, that I've encountered in, in the last few days. And, you know, if you're not a hardcore, you know, Ayn Rand fan, that's fine. But that idea of decentralization, choice, I think the term that I've heard is uh, panarchy which is uh, if you have competing jurisdictions, meaning, uh, okay, so you don't like the way that this particular uh, burg or this particular neighborhood or this, this municipality is set up, then you can just uh, you can choose to, to live under the rules of another one. Vote with your feet if necessary. People do this all the time. But the idea that it needs to be one size fits all, and if it's not, then, you know, by definition, it's out of control because the state isn't in control of it. Sorry, my friend, but that's, that's the creed of statism. And that's not a, not a very good place to be, given the, what statism is quickly becoming, which is a form of totalitarianism. And it doesn't matter if it's right-wing flavored or left-wing flavored. You know, if you've got a boot on the back of your neck, do you care if it's a left boot or a right boot? Probably not. Got a link to this in the show notes. Again, you can go to thebrianhideshow.com. So here's something to consider the next time you're feeling frustrated with rising gas prices. Those sitting at the top of the political food chain seem very determined right now to dismantle the fossil fuels industry as quickly as possible. Got a great article here from uh, Donald Stein. Sorry, Ronald Stein. Biden lacks understanding of oil's contributions to civilization. This is a great lesson in a pretty short essay. He says, the same guy who just released a three-day supply of crude oil for America from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve also terminated the Keystone XL pipeline that would have provided our company, our country rather, with up to 900,000 barrels of crude oil per day from Canada. President Biden also continues to pursue an aggressive anti-crude oil agenda that includes nixing pipelines, importing crude oil, ditching oil drilling projects, and banning new oil leases on federal lands. Biden's multiple restrictions on domestic oil production leaves the USA and its economy unnecessarily reliant on foreign governments for our energy needs. 
And he says Americans should not depend on foreign actors like OPEC Plus for our energy security and instead focus on the real challenges facing our country's future. Begging OPEC Plus to boost crude oil production to combat skyrocketing gas prices while kneecapping abundant U.S. crude oil production is next-level stupidity of whoever is advising the president. The decarbonization efforts of the Green New Deal are well underway, attempting to utilize breezes and sunshine to replace two of the fossil fuels, coal and natural gas, that have been used for generating continuous, uninterruptible electricity. Crude oil is caught on the chopping block efforts to eliminate all three fossil fuels, but crude oil is seldom ever used for electricity generation. Energy realism requires that legislators, policymakers, and media that demonstrate pervasive ignorance about crude oil usage understand the staggering scale of the decarbonization challenge. Crude oil gets manufactured into oil derivatives for more than 6,000 products and into transportation fuels needed by the world's heavyweight and long-range aviation, merchant ships, cruise ships, and militaries. It's inconceivable that we would divest away from crude oil just because two of the products manufactured from crude oil are gasoline and diesel fuels for the short-range and lightweight equipment like cars and trucks. EV technology is making progress to replace these two products from oil. EV owners have demonstrated that their usage of EVs for approximately 5,000 miles per year represents a real opportunity to meet that short-term need with electric vehicles. For the first time in 70 years, though, the fracking through the fracking boom in recent years, the U.S. attained crude oil independence status, meaning we were no longer held hostage to unstable petro powers and the vagaries of foreign energy supplies. Now, under President Trump, America had a very aggressive pro-domestic energy policy, one that allowed America to not only become energy independent, which politicians have talked about for decades, but energy dominant. For the first time since Harry Truman was president, we had more crude oil exports than imports. Did you know this? And an abundance of crude oil leads to prosperity, while a restriction or lack of crude oil leads to economic struggle and poverty. That's something we're about to get an object lesson in. We're going to come back to this article in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Man, I sincerely hope that uh, that you're finding this uh, informative and hopefully somewhat inspiring as opposed to just, uh, boy, this is making me mad. Where's my blood pressure medication? Because my goal is not just to get people riled up. That is a skill that I have developed over the years, and without bragging too much, I'm, I'm pretty good at getting folks riled, but... Uh, my goal here is I, I really I don't want to just get people, uh, you know, all all uh, tuned up and angry. I want you to be informed. I want you to be motivated to take the steps to claim your right, your birthright as a free individual. And anger alone isn't going to be enough to do it. So we're talking about uh, how Biden lacks understanding of oil's contribution to civilization. This is an excellent article from Ronald Stein 
published on cfact.org. And he talks about how Biden has vowed to set the U.S. on course to having a carbon-free electric grid by 2035. But, you know, that has virtually nothing to do with crude oil. His mission is to displace coal and natural gas with breezes and sunshine for energy generation. And that's something that, uh, that's for electricity generation specifically. That's something, surprisingly, that uh, it indicates Biden must be oblivious to the consequences of his plan as efforts to cease the use of crude oil could be the greatest threat to civilization, not climate change. He says under Biden's plan to rid America of crude oil and all its products, such a plan would ground the military, space program, and Air Force One, and mothball the airlines, cruise ships, and merchant ships, as well as eliminate the medical industry that's totally reliant on the products made from petroleum derivatives. The cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline caused the Canadian crude oil to be transported to the West Coast, where it's then shipped halfway around the world to China. After China manufactures the crude oil into usable products, manufacturing in China with uh, significantly less environmental controls than America results in increased world emissions. Those products are then shipped back to America via air-polluting ships to West Coast ports for American consumption. So without any crude oil to manufacture, elimination of the crude oil supply chain to the 129 operating refineries in the U.S., would eliminate that manufacturing sector. And without that American refining sector, the demands for fuels and products that are the basis of our lifestyles and economy would need to be met by foreign refiners exporting to the USA. After the discovery of crude oil more than uh, just more than 100 years ago, we created various modes of transportation, a medical industry and electronics and communication systems. The oil that reduced infant mortality and extended longevity to more than 80 plus and allowed the world to populate to 8 billion in less than two centuries is now required to provide the food, medical and communications to maintain and grow that population. As environmental, social and governance factors climb up the agenda, there's a lost reality that the primary usage of crude oil is not the generation of electricity but to manufacture derivatives and fuels, which are the ingredients of everything needed by economies and lifestyles to exist and prosper. So instead of pursuing pursuing a Green New Deal, green electricity policy that will achieve nothing but skyrocketing electricity prices and more inflation, Ronald Stein says Biden may want to consider taking steps that will benefit the American people such as increasing domestic crude oil production to support the manufacturing of thousands of products that lifestyles, infrastructures, and economies are based upon. Now, this is coming from an engineer. Ron Stein is an engineer, and, you know, I I guess I had never really made that connection, but I'm grateful for his clarification that, you know, when I hear the president talking about, oh, we're going to get these fossil fuels, we're going to get away from fossil fuels... You know, they talk about energy as if energy is the same thing as fossil fuels. Now, energy does depend greatly on some fossil fuels. But there's a lot of other stuff, as this article points out, that we tend to take for granted. I don't know. The environmentalist groups have been on this for a long time, but so many of these environmentalists, the really hardcore environmentalist groups, seem to have a 
uh, an almost Marxist, anti-human slant to their worldview, where, where humanity is considered a cancer and we've got to do something to reduce the population. And Oh, I know, that, that opens up some pretty wild conspiracy theories just right there. But that's what, the, that's what they're lobbying Congress to do. That's what they're lobbying the government to do. And they've had a lot of success in shutting down these industries and, and making it more expensive and more difficult for us to obtain energy. Maybe it wasn't such a great idea. Maybe. All right. A final note here just to, to end on. Uh, the rage and the destructive division that appears to be growing in our society in large part seems to be fueled by racial polarization. I'm including in today's show notes an article from Sheldon Richmond. This is from uh, everythingvoluntary.com. Racial polarization is poison. Now, this seems pretty self-evident, right? We're not, we're not trying to make the case. No, 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 it makes us better. We're having honest conversations. There are people who, by the way, would try to portray that the more polarization we have, the more honest our conversations would be. It's kind of like, I can't remember which news outlet it was. Um, oh, somebody was reporting on uh, an Asian girl brutally attacked by a couple of black young ladies on uh, the subway in uh, on the train in, in uh, Philadelphia. And if you've seen the video, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's just ugly, ugly, ugly racial animosity and violence being carried out by a couple of uh, very angry young ladies. And the, the most amazing thing about it was the person who was trying to excuse what these young ladies did said, well, what they're doing is they're trying to help this Asian girl see the problem that we have with racial discussion today. Is that all they're trying to do? Just trying to help her see as they're, they're beating her to the ground and kicking her in the face and pummeling her with their fists. Oh, wow. Yeah, that I mean, that's that's such a different thing from just people you know, reverting to a, you know, a, a more animalistic response to something that uh, has angered them. And especially with a, with a hugely inflated sense of entitlement to, I need your respect. And, you know, I think what happened was uh, these girls were harassing three young Asian boys and this Asian girl bravely stepped in between them and said, leave them alone. Anyway, the mental gymnastics that some are capable of doing to try to excuse that as well. All they're trying to do is show that, you know, that there are just ways that this needs to be addressed. It's like, no, this is what racial polarization brings. And Sheldon Richmond says, look, be they left or right, those who agitate for racial polarization seem to have no sense of the harm they could do to our society. As the wise Glenn Laurie would say, they are playing with fire. And he says, by polarization of any kind, I mean more than merely a vigorous disagreement over issues or even basic principles. That's fine. I mean something dogmatic, obsessive, and fanatical. That's what he's talking about, in which virtually everything in the world is seen through that single lens, and everyone's expected to act and speak in a certain way with stern consequences for the non-compliant. Now, it can happen in politics, but it's becoming especially common with race where some would have us interpret virtually everything through a racial prism. And it's more than simply unfortunate. It threatens what the ancient Greek philosophers and later philosophers like Spinoza, whose 389th birthday we marked just a couple of weeks ago, held to be the good life for humans. It's the conception of life in which being virtuous is seen as constitutive of happiness. 
or better, eudaimonia. Let me try that again. Eudaimonia. That's not a word I use often. Not separate from happiness or merely the means to it. Sheldon Richmond says, racial polarization threatens this not just in the obvious way, namely with the potential holds for violence. He says, I'm thinking of the more subtle way, through the narrowing and undermining of all sorts of social cooperation. And he goes into some detail on this. The idea is that when social distrust is sown among groups, particularly on the basis of spurious identity considerations, a great deal of what we value but take for granted is put at risk. Now, that doesn't mean that America's history of slavery or Jim Crow or less formal forms of racism racism couldn't be taught or discussed, frankly. They should be. But he says the cost will be unspeakably severe if frank discussion about the past or even aspects of the present transmogrify into polarization, hatred, and distrust. So his article is a call that good people everywhere should speak out against polarization. He says, think about what we all have to lose. And once it's lost, there may be no getting it back. Yeah, I understand. There are racist individuals out there in the world. In fact, it's looking more and more like the ones who are obsessed with race may be the worst offenders. You can't stop racism from coming into the world, but you can definitely stop it from coming into the world through you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.